Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Boston today for our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference and changing the world. We've got two people here that uh, are perfect for that conversation, both visionaries about food, one bit, one who's been at it uh, for quite some time and one who's a little newer to it. Uh, here in the studio with me is Ron Shaikh, uh, the founder and now chair of Panera, also a uh, long history with Oban Pan, uh, now um, the um, vehicle through which you're working, Ron, I think is called Act 3 Holdings, and you're investing in some pretty interesting uh, food concepts, and we're really, really glad that you're here today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Billy, and good to speak with you and Kurt. Thanks. And in New York is uh, Kurt Ellis, who is the founder of Food Corps, which I first heard about Kurt in, I think, maybe as far back as 2011, watching a TED Talk of yours talking about your idea for creating a Peace Corps for food. I think you're now in 350 schools in 18 states, uh, changing the way uh, young people eat uh, to ensure that it's more healthy and that they're able to be more effective and more productive. So thank you for being with us. Awesome to be on a show with people I admire so much. Thanks. Um, Ron, I want to uh, start with you. And I think of you as somebody that all of us have so much to learn from. As we were walking over, I was uh, telling you that uh, at Share Our Strength, one of the things that I really insist that many of our team members read is a conversation you had about uh, the importance of how organizations innovate and how they have to make sure that they're uh, delivery muscle doesn't completely overshadow their discovery muscle, that they stay fresh, that they continue to do new things. Um, you've not only been successful in the businesses that you've built and run, but you've had a pretty big impact on the restaurant industry as a whole. And I would say on much of the business community as a whole, because you take a very different point of view about what an organization's competitive advantage is you think you have a long-term perspective, which is is sadly missing today. Um, talk a little bit about uh, first how you got into business in the first place, and I'm really interested in how you see your role, not just as building these great businesses, but trying to influence others. Here, here's the reality: we often have to look to real life to help inform us as business leaders. I have a friend that's a type one diabetic. His purpose in life is to stay alive as long as you and I. That's what he wants to do. But you know what? He can't make that happen. It's a byproduct. What is it a byproduct of? His focus on a singular end. That end that he's focused on is keeping his blood sugar between 70 and, shall we say, 160. He knows if he delivers on that end, the byproduct is value creation. Having said that, the means to delivering on that end is blood sugar control through diet exercise, and insulin. It's literally the same as that when you think about business. Value creation, which is often what business people are about, which is to create greater value from their enterprise, it's not something you can implicitly make happen. It's a byproduct. What is it a byproduct byproduct of? Of being a better competitive alternative. Simply put, having consumers walk past your competitors and choose to walk into your establishment to do something for them. Therefore, the means and where the focus needs to be is on doing the things that make you a better competitive alternative. My point is, we way too often in business focus on value creation, profit creation, 
um, making more money as if it's something that can happen when it's a natural outcome in our economic system of making a difference in the lives of consumers. And so you asked me a question. Where did I come from? How did I get in this? I got in this to make a difference in the world. I got in this to make a you difference. Were in politics at first, right? I was, and it seemed to me that business was an actually a more powerful way um, to make a difference in the world. And we can talk about that, you, I, and Kurt, in just a couple of minutes. I have some some interesting views on business being the most powerful ways to actually change the world. But at any rate, I got into business to help change the world and impact people. And it was almost immediately after um, you had a short stint in politics and you ended up at Harvard Business School. And before you knew it, you Don't were... Don't tell anybody about that, Bill. <laughs> but before you knew it, you were part of Oban Pan and Panera, and then Panera. Literally, yeah. All right. So, yeah, we co-founded, I and a partner, Lou Kane, co-founded Oban Pan in 1981. And last year, I sold Panera in the largest U.S. restaurant deal ever done at the uh, highest multiples. And, and the reality is, Panera over the last 20 years has been the best performing restaurant stock, bar none, 26% annual appreciation uh, over those 20 years, better than, than Warren Buffett's performance. But here's the reality. We never focused on that. It was a byproduct. What was it a byproduct of? Transitioning that company every five or six years, trying to figure out where was the world going. And my view of a business leader a political leader, um, a community leader, is to discover today what's going to matter tomorrow and then make sure your organization is there when the future unfolds. So we're building into an unfolding future. And so the story of Panera is the story of transformation. Uh, 35 years ago, 40 years ago when we started it, it was a croissant shop. And we evolved it from a croissant shop into a bakery cafe. We used the bread and croissant as a platform to sell soup, salad, and sandwiches. And then in the early 90s, we were among the folks that recognized the power of what later became called fast casual, an understanding that there was a large percentage of the marketplace, say one out of every three consumers, who ultimately wanted something more differentiated and better, something they felt more self-respect with than simply fast food. They wanted real food, environments that engaged them, people that cared, and they wanted a sense of themselves and something they were proud of when they ate. That became fast casual. That was what Panera was built to do. And that was the next transformation. And then in the late 90s into 2000, I made a very difficult decision. We sold every one of our businesses. We own Obon Pen, Obon Pen International, Obon Pen Manufacturing, all to support the ability of Panera to grow. And it was really a very um, simple perspective. Um, I can remember being on the being away at Christmas time and thinking to myself, Panera had the potential to be a nationally dominant brand, but also a powerful understanding that if it didn't have the human resources and 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 the financial capabilities to grow, it wasn't going to get there. And I remember thinking to myself, um, I don't know that we could do this. And I was with a friend, and a friend looked at me and said, Ron, what would you do if Panera owned Obon Pen, not the other way around. And I thought to myself for a second, I never thought that way. I said, if I had any strength, I'd take Panera. I'd make the bet on that. That would mean I'd monetize every other business. I'd take the financial resources and, more importantly, the very best people and myself, and we go down and do it. And that was the next major transformation, the bet on Panera. And then in the zeros, again, same thing. When everybody was leveraging up their balance sheets and go, 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 and we're going to put on more debt, we held back. 
simultaneously when the recession hit and everybody was cash starved. We had the resources. We doubled the growth rate. We invested into the guest experience. We saw our comps, which is a measure in the food industry, go to mid-single digits. We tripled the stock. Is this why I've seen you referred to as a contrarian in some places? Well, it's true. I mean, if the whole world is going one way, you want to go the other because the mob is not necessarily the best predictor. And what we're really looking at is one simple principle, and you spoke to it, Billy, and I know, Kurt, and what you do, it's, it's very similar. Can we make a difference in the lives of our target guests? If we can, they're going to come. All good things are going to happen. I can take care of my organization. I can take care of my investors. I can take care of, of, of the communities in which I live. If I don't do that, if I don't have competitive advantage, I've got nothing. Kurt, I know you're also passionate about uh, making the difference in lives of those that you serve, and you're doing it through food as well. Um, give us a sense of where Food Corps originated for you. Yeah. Food Corps connects kids to healthy food in school, and we do that work because 30 million children a day show up in our nation's 100,000 schools looking to learn, uh, but also needing basic nourishment uh, that sets their bodies and minds up to thrive. And uh, I grew up the youngest of six kids in, in Oregon with a big vegetable garden and great childhood memories of time with my dad out there uh, growing 50 tomato plants a year and uh, canning those tomatoes and eating them all winter long. And uh, I was really struck by the, the experience I had as a kid in school, seeing the way food played out uh, really as as fuel uh, for many kids and kind of lacking in some of the, the meaning and cultural connection and uh, sense of purpose and sense of self that I had around food at home. And uh, there was a real difference in the quality of food I was eating. You know, as a high school student, I think I subsisted completely on chicken patties. And, you were uh, visiting Panera? <laughs> Came to uh, came to feel uh, that there was a chance to make a difference in the world through food and uh, do what I could to make sure that every kid, regardless of race or place or class, had that simple building block of healthy food in place in their lives. And uh, as a young person, I set out first as a filmmaker to tell the story of how our fast food nation runs. Uh, I moved to Iowa with my best friend after college and spent a couple of years growing corn there and following its journey as food in a documentary we made called King Corn. And then in traveling around with that film to college campuses and sharing it with people, uh, I was just amazed at how many young folks around the country were raising their hands saying they too cared about food and saw food as this place where so many of the challenges we must learn how to solve in our country intersect. Food is a place where social justice and racial justice meet environmental sustainability and public health. And all of this talent that these young people had was um, not being put to use. And so Food Corps was an attempt to put those young people out in the field uh, to connect kids to healthy food in school and make a powerful difference in their lives through that work. And, and Ron, for you, um, some of what you described you could have probably had that impact in a variety of different businesses. How did it turn out to be food for you? God, I just always loved food. I loved... Um, was food big in your family? 
was part of how my mom took care of us. It was part of where our conversations occurred. It was part of the fabric of life, and I think it is for everybody. And I think you can go back in the history of mankind and food in, in its many forms is the organizing principle. It's the context that, that holds us together. Kurt, for kids in school, uh, why haven't we paid more attention to food up until now? I know you've thought uh, hard and deep about this, and in some cases, uh, as in the the message of king corn, there's some uh, political and economic factors behind it. But why do you think that we're not uh, as attentive as we all give lip service to in terms of the way we should invest in our kids? You know, I think a lot of it is rooted in the kind of short-term versus long-term thinking challenge that that Ron has spent his career trying to pay attention to and that you've done such an awesome job paying attention to. Um, it's, it's easy for us as a country to think that the role school plays in a child's life is to educate them full stop. And yet school does so much more than take knowledge and insert it into the heads of kids. It really is the place where so much of our future culture gets built. It's the place where kids take their personal identity and their family identity and their cultural identity and they encounter the outside world uh, in a really powerful way and learn how to navigate their place in the world. Um, and school plays a huge role nourishing our kids and teaching them about food. I mean, kids spend half their waking hours and eat often half their daily calories in school. And either we are introducing our nation's children to a fast food nation that we expect them to spend the rest of their lives living in or to a different way. And um, I don't think we've done a good job in designing an education system that pays attention to the many roles schools play in children's lives. And my hope is that we can recognize the real power that schools have to shape what the future becomes and recognize that one of the most important places we can shape a better future for our country and for our kids is through food. You know, Kurt, that's very similar to the experiences at Panera. Part of the great success of Panera was its ability to build these community centers all over America. And in many cases, the role that Panera played was as the center, as the community center for, for folks across this country when communities were broken up and they no longer existed. And I think that's very similar to what you're speaking about, the schools. That's right. The schools have a role far more, right, than, than, than simply education. And unless we pay attention to where community is built, where people are nurtured and growing, we actually do a disservice um, to, to the many people that want to benefit from it. It's, it's so true, Ron. I mean, you, you think about the school cafeteria. It's this forgotten third space that anybody in their right mind kind of tries to run away from. You know, the school principals uh, so often are frustrated by their cafeterias. It's the place where in many schools disciplinary incidents peak, bullying peaks. Uh, a lot of schools resort to having a lunch monitor stand there with a whistle and just blow the whistle and make the lunchtime as short as you can to get kids in and out and get them fed and be done with it. Um, teachers finally get a break during the school day, and they are glad to have that chance to recharge uh, separately somewhere away from the bustle of kids. Uh, and 
the the way we kind of have divested from school cafeterias in this country and come to treat them as a cost center has meant that we ignore the fact that they are really a value center and they are a place where school culture could be built, where kids could connect with each other across lines of difference, where we can really come together as a community. And, you know, that's that's why when you look at what kids actually say they want out of their school food experience going forward, they describe something that looks a lot like Panera. They describe fast casual restaurants and they describe the kind of experience of a sense of community and a sense of culture and a sense of identity within a place where they're getting real food with ingredients they could name and understand what they are uh, sourced in some kind of a responsible way. Kurt, who knew we were in the same business? <laughs> well, it's not its not a complete accident that you're on together. I, I mean, I really do think of both of you as, as kind of an imagining, and particularly in terms of food, imagining a future that didn't really exist but was within our grasp to... To achieve, um, Kurt, tell us a little bit about how Food Corps actually works, and I'll, I'll give you a uh, fair warning. I want to get a little bit um, uh, granular to really understand it. I was out in um, Silicon Valley a couple of months ago, and I met with Cheryl Sandberg, who's very interested in the the food issue, and she'd written about it in one of her books. Um, and I started to do the kind of the highlight reel of share our strength and why I thought she ought to be impressed with it. And she said, no, wait a second. She goes, I'm sorry. She goes, what do you actually do? And I took, you know, 10 steps back and uh, did a, you know, what I thought was a little bit better version of the highlight reel and talking about how we leverage public programs to make sure kids get an interest. She goes, no, sorry, sorry. She goes, what do you do? <laughs> she said, do you buy food? Do you grow food yourself? Do you, do you deliver it to the kids? So tell us what Food Court actually does. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, the problem with the nonprofit sector, I guess, maybe compared to, to Ron's work, is uh, sometimes if you just have a good story, that's enough. Uh, nobody's always buying a product that they actually get to inspect. So I appreciate the discipline. Um, you can think of the work Food Corps does as, as operating on both sides of uh, the school food equation, right? There's, there's supply and there's demand. Uh, kids need access to healthy, high-quality food in school, and they need to want to eat it. Uh, if we're going to successfully uh, create a future where every child gets the nourishment they need to thrive, uh, we need to have a population of kids who are really excited to eat healthy food when it's served to them, and they need to be served that healthy food every single day. And uh, the place we choose to, to play in that work is schools. Obviously, families are incredibly important, and the, the kind of public sphere is incredibly important. Um, but what we love about working in schools is that kids get an incredible amount of their nourishment from schools. There's a lot of value currently being left on the table in how we feed kids in schools. Uh, schools are charged with educating kids about food and um, in too many cases are still following kind of... Uh, outdated models of a, an authority figure pointing at a government poster on the wall and how they, they do that kind of nutrition education. Um, and schools are a system that uh, have the potential to be changed at scale. And uh, when we've got 30 million kids a day uh, showing up to eat uh, in our nation's 100,000 schools, that's seven times as many uh, cafeterias as there are McDonald's franchises. That's a real kind of chance to make significant change at scale in how the kids across our country eat. So the work Food Corps does on the demand building side is we recruit and train and support young leaders who are serving in our AmeriCorps program, dedicating a year or two of their lives in a Teach for America or Peace Corps type position 
uh, building school gardens, delivering really high-quality hands-on lessons about what healthy food is and where it comes from, and mobilizing the school community to get kids excited about healthy food. And the impact of that food education work uh, that is the bedrock of what Food Corps does is that uh, kids in our schools try new foods, they improve their attitudes and preferences for fruits and vegetables, and uh, in schools where our hands-on learning work is happening to a high degree, kids eat triple the fruits and vegetables compared to a school uh, that has just started implementing the program. Then on the other side of the equation, Food Corps is starting to work on the supply side of school food. So supporting the efforts of uh, some of the largest school districts in the country who have come together under the banner of the Urban School Food Alliance and are doing collective purchasing of healthier, higher quality food, mobilizing some of the current generation of visionary school food service leaders to help them learn from each other about what's working well in communities around the country. Uh, and then beginning to build out the talent pipeline for the next generation leaders in school food who will come along uh, and lead school food efforts across key districts in this country and ensure that the quality and healthfulness of the food that shows up on the lunch tray is really high. And that complements the work we've done to make sure that kids want to eat that healthy food when it's served to them. Oh, I was going to simply ask, how many mem how many folks are there involved with Food Corp at this time? And are there demonstrable results you can point to that show the impact you all are having? Yeah. So, so Food Corp works uh, across 18 states, half rural, half urban, half red states, half blue states, um, and serves with our uh, we serve 350 schools at depth with our AmeriCorps program. So we have 230 full-time uh, core members who are out in the field in low-income schools doing the, the daily work of delivering high-quality food education to kids. And then our work on the supply side of school food is really operating at the systemic level and so reaches a much larger population uh, but is focused on kind of improving the quality and healthfulness of school food. And yeah, wins for us look like uh, a big evaluation that Columbia University did of food core work that showed kids in mature food core schools eating triple the fruits and vegetables compared to schools in a low implementation school. Uh, it means legislative wins. We do policy advocacy based on uh, the work we do in the field uh, and have secured some victories in the farm bill that we're excited about. Um, it also means um, shifts in uh, improving uh, purchasing practices. Uh, for instance, we just uh, worked with the Urban School Food Alliance to get their coalition of districts, a dozen of the very largest school districts in the country from New York to L.A. Uh, to Houston and Dallas uh, and Chicago, signing on to increase their purchasing of local food uh, from local agricultural markets and local farmers. Um, so it's a, it's a range of indicators that we look for, but it's all about improving the quality of school food and getting kids excited to eat that healthy food and successfully shifting their consumption patterns at the end of the day. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question, but I think it's in the same deck of cards that Ron was getting at. And Ron, you should feel free to push us on this because I feel like both Kurt and I in our, and many in our sector have a lot to learn from you. I, I always, uh, in addition to wanting to understand how people are measuring performance, I always want to 
get from the leader of an organization their vision of what does ultimate success look like, uh, and how do you how do you describe that with some precision and clarity? And I'm curious about that for uh, for you, Kurt, and Foodcore, um, and I'd love to hear it, Ron, in terms of the, the way you think about your work as well, and whether there's pieces of that that we should be adopting for ours. How would you attack that, Kurt? To me, it's about. Uh, do our schools, both school by school, if you walk into an individual school in this country, uh, or as a school system, if you look at how all 100,000 schools and the, the big national school lunch program and, and its related uh, programs are operating, to me it comes down to are we unlocking the power that food brings to bear? Across race and place and class, are kids eating the kind of healthy diet that sets them up to fulfill their potential. And the big shift that needs to happen if you ask public health experts is we need to get kids eating their vegetables. If you could wave one magic wand, uh, that's the one you'd wave. So that's the key metric we look for is fruit and vegetable consumption. Um, but also beyond just are we leveraging the power of food to improve nutrition and health outcomes, it becomes about are we leveraging the power of food from a cultural standpoint? Are we shifting school climate and culture because kids are connecting to each other and finding their sense of identity and taking an interest in their place in the world through food. And that means kids finding their identity as environmentalists and environmental stewards. It means kids finding their identity in terms of their cultural heritage and having a chance to eat foods that tie back to uh, the rich cultures they come from. And it means kids learning how to sit together around a table and converse across lines of difference. Uh, and if we did those things, I think our country uh, would start to, to feel like uh, a, a different kind of place, a place with a lot more connection. And it would be a place where we're living longer, healthier, more productive lives. So, Ron, as somebody who has uh, repeatedly built something about a thousand times larger than most of us in the nonprofit sector have ever built, are these questions that you ask yourself, how do, how do you think about it? I've been asking myself those questions for 40 years, mostly about four in the morning. You know, uh -huh. and, 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 and it's, it's very simple. It starts with, are we making a real difference in the lives of our guests? Are we getting them excited? Are we making a real difference in the lives of the people that work with us? Are we doing right by them? Are we making a difference in, in, in the lives of the communities in which we operate? And then finally, by doing that, are we making a difference in economic terms for our investors? The folks that, in my case, put $8 billion of capital on the table betting we were going to do what we did. Um, at a personal level, I, I, I expand that and say, am I, as a leader, Am I doing the kinds of things, the kind of thinking, putting in place the kinds of capabilities that down the road, three years, five years, seven years from now, will leave the organization I'm charged with leading, will leave it in a better place? Um, and then at a very personal level, I always ask myself, am I doing work I respect? You know, I'll, I'll tell you guys a, a quick story. I watched my parents pass away, and I know and watching them both pass away, that there's a judgment day. I cannot tell you it's it's upstairs. I can tell you in the case of my parents, I watched them go through their own judgment days. And I know that day comes. And I think the time to be doing that kind of uh, post-mortem is not in the ninth inning of life, but in the third inning, and in the fifth inning, and in the seventh inning of life. And I often try to judge myself 
by whether if if this were the end, I would respect what I've done. And I know of no better standard, no important metric than that very one for the kinds of ways in which we live our life, our lives and, and the work that we do. So it becomes a very internal kind of metric more than any of these external metrics that we all think about and they're told we should be using to run our lives. Well, you know, Billy, like you and, and like you, Kurt, at one point in your life, you'll find, uh, you know, when they tell me how wonderful I am, I know the truth. When they tell me how bad I am, I know the truth. The reality is the only one you're left with is yourself. And if you don't have your own self-respect, what do you have? And when you were uh, talking, Ron, about your uh, parents passing and their judgment day, this was a moment at which you're saying they kind of reflected back on their lives and thought about what mattered, what didn't, what, what counted? Yes. I mean, I know, I don't know if your parents are alive. No, they both died as well. How about you, Kurt? I was just with them all last week. Got it. Yes. But when that day comes, and hopefully it's going to be in the far distance, um, you do see people reflect on their lives. And they reflect on the decisions they made and the choices they made. And, you know, I, I, I have an expression I, I, I think about all the time. The time to worry about a heart attack is not on the way to the hospital. It's 20 years earlier. And the time to worry about living a life you respect is while you're living, not as you're passing. And all I can say is that's the way I try to organize my life, my activities, and what I do with my life. Well, I really... Uh appreciate and, and, and admire the, I guess, the elegance of the way you've talked about, do I respect what I'm doing? Because as you, as you laid out the factors in terms of measuring success, there was one right before that one in terms of the return that I'm getting from my investors that I understand exactly how you measure. The others are a little bit more difficult to measure in terms of, uh, you know, the way your guests and the way your team uh, respond, but but I guess as long as it's the work that you respect, you're saying those other issues are going to almost sure. resolve themselves. And, and, you know, you know, we, we know what return on investment is, and we know Panera had this extraordinary performance, twenty six percent returns. But you know what? That's not the part that gets me the most excited. The part that I feel the greatest pride in is the thousands of people that have written to me and said the difference we made in their lives when they were working at Panera the things that they learned, the approaches that they were um, opened up to, that to me makes a huge difference. And I think about the many times I've walked into a Panera and people have walked up to me and said, are you Ron Shake?" I say, yeah, and I'm not sure how to respond to that. Are they going to tell me something positive or tell me what I did wrong? And they walk up to me and they say, Ron, I just want to thank you. My community group, um, my friends over here in the corner, I want you to meet them. My friends um, have been coming to this Panera every morning for eight years, or we've been having lunch here, or our Bible study group has been here, or I've been working on this novel here, or I know your associate. And they tell me their individual stories of their interaction with Panera. And that, to me, um, is as gratifying as anything I can tell you. I do a lot of speaking around the country. And what amazes me is, after I get done speaking about uh, long-termism and the and 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 my and and the pervasive short termism I see in our in our politics and 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 in corporate America. After I get into speaking about these issues, people come up to me and they want to tell me their Panera stories. And the truth of the matter is, that's what moves me, and that ability to touch people in a real way that they're willing to talk about. That's the quantifiable way you can test it. 
I, I can see what you're talking about. Uh, my Our family spends a lot of our summer up in Maine at Kennebunkport, and there's a Panera. I don't know if you've ever uh, been there or, or know about it at a place called Biddeford Crossing, uh, and it's about probably 25-minute drive from Kennebunkport. Uh, but I go there most mornings because I need a quiet place to work. But as I look around... So are you writing the great American novel? Are you in a Bible study group, or is it... Well, it's not, bi- it's not Bible study, that's for sure. And it's, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take the great American novel compared to the other two. <laughs> Oh, okay. But um, but that's where I go. But the people I see are many of the same people, and I see families come, and I see grandparents with their grandchildren, and it really is that kind of community place. It's very different from anywhere else I've ever been. That's got to feel good. That. Yeah. But but at any rate, the, the 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 point to your story is each of these are the measures we as as human beings use to measure our impact, and I think that each of us know the impact we have. And the challenge that I ask of myself, I, I, I ask of my friends and your listeners, what kind of impact are you having? And if this was your, your at, at the end of your life, would you feel pleased with that? Would you feel like you contributed more than you took away? Would you feel like you legitimately and, and materially left this place a, a richer place for your existence? I think those are the kinds of questions we ask. And ultimately, you know, the, the, the question of life is relative to your, your 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 relationships, your work, your health, your spirituality. Are you doing things you respect? Ron, I think it it's got to be that degree of empathy and passion and willingness to kind of put yourself into a vulnerable position that also has made you wildly successful in business. In that, I think the only way you get to predict the future as successfully as you have done it is you really see people like you really you really immerse yourself in your stores and understand why are people coming there what do they really want out of life and what do they want next and what do you yourself really want to feel like you've lived a life that is full and pretty soon you're starting to tap into some pretty big unanswered needs that are out there in our culture and you identify them and you figure out how to build a business around them and move your existing businesses toward those opportunities and it becomes really, really powerful. If you go into a food corps school today, uh, you'll find an AmeriCorps service member who is dedicating themselves to a year of modestly paid public service, getting kids excited to eat healthy food. And what's so powerful about the AmeriCorps model with Food Corps is these are near peers. These are these are role models uh, to the kids they are teaching. You know, somebody who's just out of college showing up in uh, an elementary or middle school uh, carries a lot of weight. Uh, you know, they're not a, a kind of finger-wagging authority figure. Uh, they're a hero. And... Uh, you know, we had in our early days uh, a, uh, a kid in, in Iowa come up to one of our core members and say, wow, you're like Justin Bieber, but for vegetables. And I think that that kind of uh, that kind of enthusiasm that is infectious that comes from a young person who very often shares backgrounds and life experiences with the low income kids they're serving and who can show how powerful it is to have healthy food as a, as a bedrock part of your life, uh, it really makes a real difference. So in a food core school, our core members are teaching lessons about the five parts of the plant and then working with kids to make five plant part tacos where they've got roots and stems and shoots and leaves and flowers uh, in their in their wrap. Uh, they're working uh, to get kids excited to, to eat the rainbow 
they're standing at the front of the cafeteria line doing a taste test, uh, introducing kids to a new food that is showing up on the lunch line uh, or giving kids uh, their first taste of a kale chip. And uh, those things are really powerful, not just because they're a chance to, to try new foods and actually get a hands-on experience growing a new food in a school garden, cooking it yourself, and then eating it yourself, but because you're getting that lesson from someone who you admire and who you have a connection with. And I'll say that um, some of the greatest validation I've gotten since we've started doing this work has been the multiple core members who have joined Food Corps because they, as a young person, had a Food Corps service member in their school. Well, Billy, I mean, uh, Kurt, I think it's the same for you. I think that in so many ways, um, the most powerful capability that any leader, any organization builder, anybody who wants to create anything needs to have is empathy. And it tends to be a more female characteristic, actually, than a male characteristic. The ability to stay present, the ability to listen, the ability to feel and understand what is that need um, is actually the most powerful skill one can have. Yeah. Because that opens up the future to you. And I think you've done that, Kurt, um, with creating Food Corps. I mean, in essence, you saw a need. I was sitting here thinking about it as you were speaking. You know, there was a powerful need there, but we as a society, we as a, as, as a country, we're actually doing a pretty poor job of using um, this most powerful uh, mechanism to serve the lives of our kids. And you saw that need through your work and you responded to it. One of the things Kurtz talked about is food as a prism through which we can see refracted so many of the issues that we care about in society. You're very eloquent on this point, uh, Kurt, but you talk about you know the environment, health, education, all of these issues as they relate to food. So this is not kind of a issue uh, a kind of a silo of its own. It's really, I think, cross-cutting in a lot of ways. Well, you know, when we when we talk to the students who we serve, they're really clear on what they want. They want real food that is good for them and that tastes good. And most importantly, and in a way that really is not happening under the current system, they want a voice in what they are eating. And they want a chance to kind of claim some ownership and agency uh, over the kind of food future that is being offered up to them. And, you know, for us, the impact that matters most when you get down to that real human level, it's the supermarket in rural eastern Oregon running out of turnips the week we did the turnip taste test in school because so many kids went home and wanted their families to cook it with them. And it's the teacher here in New York City who's uh, said that Food Corps has really shifted the the culture of her classroom and gotten kids to be comfortable trying things in all kinds of new ways where we may have done it through fruits and vegetables and introducing kids to beets for the first time, uh, but suddenly kids are willing to get out there and take take risks. And that's what I love about food. I mean, sure, it's about uh, the the stuff we put in our bodies that gives us the, the strength to go on and, and learn and live, um, but food is also this thing through which we make choices multiple times a day that affect the land and where that food is grown. And that affects the people upstream who's had their hands on that food and who created it for us and whose lives matter. And uh, it ties us to each other in, in really powerful ways. I was with you all the way until you mentioned turnips. 
<laughs> Not a turnip man. Um, Kurt, can you give us kind of a before and after look at what school meals are like before uh, Food Corps is there, the kind of the traditional uh, issues that uh, are part of school meals and what kids are receiving and how you try and change that and then what it looks like? School food is is changing around the country and and starting to change faster and faster. So uh, you have to be careful, you know, who you pick on and with what here, because there's been a whole lot of progress uh, over the last generation. uh, But so much more progress is needed. Uh, Still today, if you walk into a lot of schools around the country, uh, you find kids getting flavored milk and uh, pizza where the tomato sauce on the pizza is is counted as their vegetable. Uh, You find uh, the kind of uh, super processed food like the, the chicken patties that I uh, lived on in my high school experience. And uh, in far too many places, we still have school food that is heavily processed and heavily packaged and uh, not fresh, not rooted in, in whole ingredients. And that's beginning to change uh, around the country in places Food Corps is proud to work. Uh, in, in Boston, for instance, um, a really amazing effort is underway to, to convert the whole uh, school district to scratch cooking, uh, and kitchens are being built uh, across Boston schools. Uh, in New York City now, there's a scratch cooking pilot uh, that's gaining traction. Uh, so the change that's taking root in our country schools is around food that is sourced from local farmers increasingly, food that is minimally processed, that is uh, focusing on fruits and vegetables as much as possible and whole grains uh, and high quality protein. And uh, we know that's that's the kind of food that is healthy for us to eat, uh, is a simple, minimally processed diet with a wide variety of really colorful foods where the colors don't come from from dye but comes from, from the soil. And uh, that's the future Food Corps is working to create school by school. Let me ask you both about uh, leadership. Ron, you described uh, the decision that you had to make to um, uh, divest of a lot of the assets that were under the, I guess, the Panera brand and selling off Obonpon and uh, other uh, enterprises. Uh, it sounded like it was a tough decision. I want to get a sense of how tough it was and, and what do you, what issues do you sort out when you face a decision that's really a hard one? Well, it was probably the toughest decision of my business life. The reality is that Obonpen was my first child. I love the people of Obonpen. So it wasn't just a business for you? It was not a business at all. And yet it was a bet on the future. And it was a realization that Panera had this extraordinary potential, the potential to be a nationally dominant company. For every thousand people that say that, one ever makes it. And and a realization... um, that 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 this needed to be served. You know, I think one of the most powerful things we can do as leaders is first, tell ourselves the truth. Second, understand what matters. And then third, get it done. And it's in that spirit that I made this decision. I told myself the truth about the potential and the challenges of trying to maintain this together as four different businesses in one public company. I understood that what mattered was serving Panera, and then I got it done. And I I must tell you something. The hardest part in making those kind of decisions as a leader is, is the uncertainty that occurs when you lead. Because nothing is certain until it's done. People say to me all the time today, Ron, why didn't you tell me about it when you were in the middle of transitioning this? Back then, you could have bought that stock for a, you know, a penny on the dollar. And I want to look at them and go, you don't get it. I was telling you. Nobody wanted to listen. 
And the truth is, nobody wanted to hear and nobody wants to understand. And the toughest time is when you're making a decision, when you're when when you are responsible for that organization, you're leading it down a road. You need to project to everybody the confidence to get them over the uh, the hurdle and to walk through that journey while you yourself are unsure. It's it's a it's a difficult uh, place to be, but it's the reality of what leadership is. Kurt, have you faced that in any way or had tough leadership decisions you've had to make building food core? Without a doubt. Uh, you know, the the recent challenge we faced that was a really significant decision for us was we had spent seven years focusing on how you build demand for healthy food in school and building out this AmeriCorps program that each year attracts uh, a thousand candidates, uh, really passionate, dedicated, uh, mostly young folks just out of college who are willing to raise their hands and pour themselves into the work of uh, connecting kids to healthy food in a in a high need school. And we had gotten better and better at that work on the demand building side of school food, and really came face to face with the reality that if kids wanted to eat a healthier diet and wanted to eat fruits and vegetables and had gotten used to uh, access to salad and a bunch of foods that they may not uh, be seeing in their school lunch menus. And the school food itself had not changed. Uh, Our work was going to maybe go from being small acts of charity to medium-sized acts of charity, uh, and it was going to ultimately fall short. Uh, of the change that actually needed to happen in the world. And so we decided we needed to begin working on the supply side of school food, which has required us to begin developing a whole new realm of, of skills uh, because this is a business. This is you know really the only part of our school system that we expect to run as a business. Um, and the school food supply chain has a lot of powerful actors in it, and it bumps up against policy constraints and economic constraints and uh crazy power dynamics where superintendents tend to kind of demote and, and disrespect the role of food in schools in all too many places. And uh, for us, the decision to say, we believe we have the ability to get good at something we're not yet good at, uh, was a real decision to put ourselves out there. And uh, we're learning how to get good at it. And I, I hope we get good at it because Lord knows the, the world needs us to. Well, maybe one of the things that Food Corps and Share Our Strength can both do is uh, get maybe three or four days of Ron's time somewhere down the road, and he can come in and kick the tires, look under the hood, and help us make some of these tough decisions. Uh, Ron, you wear um, a number of different hats, and uh, I want to talk politics for a minute because you've been a real force in an, in an organization and a movement called No Labels, which is designed to bridge some of the divides that uh, exist in what feels like certainly the most divided time I can remember politically. Talk a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish with no labels and how do you balance what a lot of business people feel is a very delicate uh, dance of expressing uh, political opinions or viewpoints and running a business for people who you know, may not be political at all in terms of your customers? Sure. So I, I, I look, at, I think it's very simple. We as a nation, we understand a couple of things. We're competing with nation states like the Chinese. They have 20 and 30 year strategic plans. And if we're in a position where we can't get a budget for the next six months, how do we ever compete? If we're in a place where they have a strategic plan that takes them for decades 
and we can't agree on anything for the next year, how do we compete? If we're in a country where we're, we're veering from right to left and back and forth and we can't come together, how do we compete? It's simple. If we want to leave this country in a place where it's able to support itself to play the kinds of roles it's played in the past and, and do right for our kids, we've got to come together. And the reality is there's a silent majority in this country. I think we all know it. Uh, they probably represent 65% of the country. They agree on most issues. There certainly are folks on the extremes that don't. But these folks that are in the middle need to demand um, that our leaders solve real problems. The truth of the matter is that the only special interest in D.C. that is not organized is the common interest. And the currency in D.C. is unfortunately pushing people to the extremes. We can talk about why. There are structural reasons for it. There's any number of causes for it. But we need to really examine why it is our politics has gotten so short-term, so coarse, and, and, and so it's my way or the highway. And unless we can solve that, we are not going to be the country in the future that we have been in the past. And what, what will it take? What will it take to bring that common interest to the fore? It's going to require first structural change. The reality is that 365 of our 465 congressional districts went blue or red in the last election, 60% or greater. What that means is that the way in which elections are playing out are not in the general, but in the primary. And so you talk to our congresspeople, most of them are running to the extremes, to the right or left, to avoid being primaried. The truth of the matter is small minorities in the Democratic Party, small minorities in the Republican Party are dominating those primaries with both resources and constituencies such that they're forcing um, the, the, the governance processes to the extremes. The only way to resolve that is prioritize voting, open primaries, um, the kinds of structural reforms that allow um, and encourage folks to move to the middle and not push them out to the extremes before the general election. Simultaneously, I think you have two parties that have been almost put into a place uh, where there's been a, a hostile takeover. I don't necessarily think the views of our parties are serving the American people at this point. And I think that we really need to look for and ask for candidates that serve the overall good. The reality is this, as in anything in life, um, if you can't come together and you can't find an ability to hold somebody else's opinion as relevant and real um, and, and valuable and viable, then you're not going to be able to ever solve the problem. Making the other guy wrong isn't going to solve this. Not for those of us that think Trump is a, a poor president. Not for those of us that think Trump is the best president we ever could have. We need to come together and respect these opposing views and find what we have in common, not force ourselves to the extremes. The reality is the same thing is happening in business. Just as our politics have gotten increasingly short-term and focused on how I beat the other guy, our corporate policies and procedures have done the same. The reality is in corporate America, we're increasingly living in a short-term world. When I went public 40 years ago, the, when, I, when I first entered the business world 40 years ago, the average shareholder held their stock for eight years. Today, they rent that stock for eight months. That's a tenfold change in the holding period. There's a lot of reasons for that, a lot of reasons that have caused it. 
Active managers are marked to market. You have a situation where index funds are an increasing part of the, the capital structure. You have large parts of the market being traded in algorithm-based flash trading. The result is you have increasing activists. What that means is very rarely do our corporate leaders have the support and the wherewithal to make the kinds of long-term decisions that serve Panera so very well. The result of it is companies are increasingly not entering the public market, our capital markets. And the result is that we are far less able to do what we want the economy to grow. The reality is any economist will tell you, Billy and, and Kurt, if we want real GDP growth, it's going to occur because we have productivity increases and because we have innovation. If you live in a short-term world, the only kind of innovation you can take on is cost-cutting because it gives you quick results and it's a known commodity. The point I'm trying to make is both in our political sphere, our civic society, and in corporate America, we've increasingly, for reasons beyond us, seen our systems get pervasively short-term. If we want to change it, we need to make structural changes in the way in which our elections occur. If we want to change it in, our, in corporate America, we need to really examine the, a range of structural suggestions like differential voting periods, differential um, voting based on how long you hold stock. We need to examine the compensation systems and how they've increasingly become short-term. And we need to really discuss um, how guidance is occurring. But my point is, on all of this, we end up with the system we deserve. And so many of us understand the system isn't working. The challenge is, can we paint a future, a way to address that, to fix it, and to improve um, this country and our and our and our um, public markets to better serve us. You know, it strikes me, Ron, that, you know, oftentimes the, the path to structural change is begins through cultural change. And there's a real role for food to play in building a different kind of discourse around politics in this country. Uh, the kind of power of food is it brings people together around a table and lets us both exchange ideas that may be contradictory to one another while exchanging love in the form of the best currency we've got for it, which is which is sharing food with each other. And that's been true for generations and generations. The, the reality is you give voice to it, is if we sit down for a meal, we'll make sense of things together. Yeah. If we simply yell at each other and blame each other, we're never going to get there. And the reality is that, you know, I, I'm up in here in Massachusetts with, with Billy. And in Massachusetts, you know, you know, Trump has almost no support. You know, it's it's all the anti-Trump movement. And I travel around the country. I go to lots of places. I'm in Missouri. I'm in the Midwest. I go to communities where, where Trump has very high levels of support. The reality is both points of view are valid and both need to be respected. And we need to understand what it is um, about, you know, we need to understand up here in Massachusetts what it is about those people that support Trump that he's doing something for them. And what is it, um, quite frankly, up here in Massachusetts that, that we understand that we believe is problematic for this country that's not being understood? And unless we can come together over things like meals and talk to each other, unless we can find our 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 our, our, our a, a common perspective and work through that, we will never solve these problems. I'll make one last comment as a business leader. If I ever tried to run our business 
and I had no strategy for where we would be in one year, three years, and five years, if I did it by simply leveraging the balance sheet and putting that entity into debt, you would fire me and you should fire me. And the truth of the matter is, that's what our Congress has done. That's what our political leaders are done, have done. And frankly, as the shareholders of this country, we need to demand better. Have either of you ever been tempted to not try to change things through business but through or through the nonprofit sector, but through politics like running for office, Ron or Kurt? Uh, I, uh, I worked on political campaigns, uh, as a young person and, and briefly worked for elected officials, uh, that I'd worked for. And, uh, it's a, it's a really challenging time to, to be in politics. It feels like we may be, uh, entering a new era with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and opportunity. Uh, but at the same time, um, I love the opportunity to be as entrepreneurial as we are at Food Corps. Uh, we're making a difference on a problem I feel is deeply important to the future of our country and to our kids. And the government is a huge piece of the the ultimate solution to how you connect kids to healthy food in, in school at the kind of 100,000 school scale. Uh, but for my own personal life and, and my own answer to the question that Ron asked of, you know, when you look at your own life and are you making a difference, uh, I know we're making a powerful difference through Food Corps and it's a difference that's not going to be undone in the next election election cycle. And it's a difference that is rooted in the communities we serve across the country and, and led by people at the ground level. And that all feels really, really good. It's hard to argue with, Ron. Oh, I, I, I thought you said it beautifully, Kurt. I, I think that for me, what motivates me, what drives me, what centers me is the ability to make a difference and to feel like I'm making a real difference in the lives of the people I work with, in the lives of my constituents, um, my stakeholders. And so that's the standard I use. I've, you know, essentially found that helping make the argument, working behind the scenes and focusing on what I focus on day to day has been the most powerful means um, to be part of the solution. Uh, and I expect that I'll continue to do that, though I, I don't rule anything out. Uh, let me ask you one last question, because we've got to wrap up. And I'm so really grateful to have uh, both of you on. Um, you're both food guys. Tell us about one new food idea that we should uh, know about, be looking forward to, that you're excited about in the world of food. Well, that's easy for me, Kurt and Billy. I, I, I start by talking about the Mediterranean diet. Just last week, U.S. News and World Report said the Mediterranean diet was now the number one diet in the country. It's not a fad. It's a lifestyle. It's an approach to food. It's fundamentally planned forward. It's about eating well and eating in moderation, good carbs, bad carbs, focus on the good carbs, good, good protein, bad protein, focus on the good protein. Specifically, when we're talking about good carbs, we're talking about whole grains. We're talking about um, avoiding bad carbs, empty carbs, essentially sugar and uh, sugar-based kinds of products, very processed. When we're talking about good proteins and bad proteins, we're really talking about, uh, when we talk about good proteins, we're talking about plant-based proteins. We're talking about grass-fed kinds of um kinds of meats and, and fish. We're talking about bad proteins. We're talking about processed meats. We're talking about things that have um, been cured uh, and and actually have been shown to not be uh, particularly good for the human system. 
and we're talking when we're talking about good fats and and bad fats, we're talking about good fats like uh, like olive oil, um, um, monosaturated um, oils, and we're talking about avoiding um, heavily processed um, uh, oils or fats. Um, you know, it's it's about doing things the right way. To me, the Mediterranean diet is is the future. It may also be why we are among the largest investors and just led um, the acquisition of Zoe's Kitchen, which is the largest Mediterranean chain in the country. And so, what do those what are, what do some of those foods look like? What are the what do those foods include in a Mediterranean diet? You're, you're talking again about fundamentally plant forward. You're talking about olive oil. You're talking about um, uh, things like lentils, falafel. You're talking about lots of greens and grains, um, and you're talking about doing it, again, in, in a community-based setting, and you're talking about um, an attitude and approach to food. Where's, where did you learn about it, and where's the place that our listeners can learn about the Mediterranean diet? Well, the place to go for the Mediterranean diet, and again, this is like a commercial because I'm, I'm the chairman, but, but Kava, which is out of D.C., and... Um, just acquired Zoe's um, is some of the most exciting food you're going to find. It's bold flavors, it's intense, it's, yet it's proteins that we know. Things like chicken, uh, lamb, and lots of grains, and you know things like hummus. Um, and you can come to any kava. We have now 80 of them in the country. We have 275 of the Zoe's, and you can experience elements of this. And you're going to leave healthier. We sure hope so. <laughs> uh, Kurt, how about you? Yeah, you're making me hungry here, Ron. It's a, it's a problem. Uh, I'll share one innovation coming out of a school we serve in Arkansas that I think is great. In a bunch of the food core schools where we work, uh, we run into a challenge, which is teachers in a classroom setting who've got a big gulp sitting on their desk and they're rewarding kids who answer a math question right with candy. Uh, and the kind of role modeling that happens in, in too many classrooms around the country is not the kind of uh, healthy healthy diet and valuing of, of yourself and your future that we want kids to pick up. Uh, so we just heard from a teacher in Arkansas who has started uh, handing out seed packets uh, to kids who answer questions correctly in her class, and I think that's a pretty fantastic choice. Excellent. Thank you. And Kurt, best way to people, for people to learn more about um, your work is through foodcore.org? Yes, join us at foodcore.org. You can get involved in our advocacy efforts uh, to work towards better food policy affecting kids in schools. And uh, it's recruitment season. We're looking for a new class of passionate, dedicated people to sign up and join us in the field, uh, working school by school, building school gardens, and helping kids uh, enjoy the magic of eating carrot with the dirt still on. Excellent. Thank you. And um Ron Shake, as I mentioned, you wear a lot of hats, but people can learn more about your work through No Labels, through cap, uh, Conscious Capitalism, uh, through Kava. Um, you've got a pretty cool website of your own, just ronshake.com or .org? .com, R-O-N-S-H-A-I-C-H.com. And there you'll find uh, various things I've written or speeches or podcasts um, over the years. Excellent. Ron, thanks for being with us. Kurt, likewise, really, really appreciate it and looking forward to doing more with you between Share Our Strength and uh, Food Corps. Pleasure to be with both of you. Thanks.
Uh, thanks, as always, listening to Add Passion and Stir. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please, uh, at addpassionandstir.org, look at some of our previous episodes. You can rate us or rank us or subscribe. Uh, grateful to our producer who's here in Boston, Woody, Paul Woodle, thank you. Kelly Griffin, Debbie Shore, the team at Share Strength that makes this happen. We're at Cybersound Studios. Thanks, Perry, for having us. Um, we're thrilled to be here. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.